This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Architects come out of school with a ton of knowledge, except most don't actually know how to be an architect. And what does that even mean? That's what we'll be discussing today on episode 75, Should Architects Do It All? Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from the Bilco Company, proudly serving the building industry since 1926. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to talk about building an architect. And part of our discussion will be determining what that might actually mean and how your definition of this could be different based on your interest, the type of work you do, the role you have in your office, and even the size of firm where you practice. So this is at the root of a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none philosophy or the inch-wide, mile-deep philosophy, which, yes, I'm aware I've just mixed my metaphor, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah, so, I think we can make it work. I mean, I knew I could go inch wide mile deep versus mile wide inch deep but something about that i just didn't like i like the jack of all trades master of none yeah because prior to this is not really true but it's mostly true prior to me coming over to boca pal i would have considered myself a jack of all trades and the truth is i still consider myself that way Mm -hmm. sure but our office structure is predicated on the idea that everybody has kind of a path that they choose and a specialty that they choose that allows them to focus in on a skill set that makes them experience, hopefully, greater success at their job, which I don't think that's uncommon in larger firms, for sure. Yeah, in larger firms. I wouldn't argue with that either. I think there's probably a more siloed structure, if you want to call it that. You know, I kind of wonder, though, because in our own office, And I don't know if this is because I've shown up and I'm a disruptor, to be sure. (laughs) I haven't decided. That's an understatement. But yeah, I got you. Continue. Yes, I am definitely a disruptor. But I'm I'm trying to be a, a collaborative disruptor. I would hope that part of the value I bring as one person into a firm of 100 plus, I hope that some of the value is that I'm not ingrained with the same type of thinking that other people are who might have evolved through this very kind of, I would say, standard thinking and organization of a firm that has this many people in it. Yeah, that's huge. You know? Yeah. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's the, hey, when you work in a small firm, especially the path that I took when my first job was me and one other person, and that one other person traveled all the time. So when they say, hey, put together this drawing set, and you literally have no idea what that means, you pull out a set of drawings and say, I'm going to copy what all this is and I can try to logic myself through and go, okay, this is what the plans look like. This is the type of information that's on this plan. And you just kind of eventually get yourself there. Yeah. You figure it out on your own and there's not a lot of lead involved. There's nobody saying, hey, that's not how we detail this sometimes, you know, or I wrote a post about this just the other day. Well, actually it was on our last podcast episode. And I was talking about how as a 25 year old talking to CEOs of hundred million dollar firms. And I hadn't really learned how to talk to people properly <laughs> yet. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. The vote is still out on that, I think. But yeah. <laughs> no, the vote is in. The vote is in. 
the vote is in. I'm terrible. So. Oh, okay. I got you. Yes. Except for me, but I'm the only vote that matters in this case, as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, so the point of this is that the skill set that I developed was really the result of the fact that I didn't have a small army of people that had a this inch wide, mile deep reservoir of knowledge that I could go say, hey, how do you do this? I had to do it all myself. And what happens is I don't think I'm as good at it as other people are. But I think I know how to do a lot more stuff than other people do. All right. That's the jack of all trades scenario. I think in small firms, that's the role that almost everyone picks up. You have to know how to do everything and you can't, you can't focus on one thing because that's really not how it works. It's funny. I was having a conversation with another architect just the other day about code issues. And his comment was, well, I worked at a really large firm. He's like, we have a guy that does code. So anytime we start doing design work, we call him over and ask him if we have questions about code and he knows all that stuff. So I didn't have to know it. So that's not in my wheelhouse because there was somebody that that was their thing. And so that was their thing on all the projects. I wasn't overly familiar with code because I didn't have to be. That's from the structure of the company, not by choice, I would say. Well, that's kind of a learning by osmosis, right? Like it's not your responsibility, but you're around it enough to know how to ask questions to its existence. Mm -hmm. So I can say, Hey, if I'm doing a building that is considered a high rise, I'm going to need a fireman's vestibule, right? Yeah. I don't need to know what that means other than it takes up space and it needs to connect to a stair. But someone's going to say, oh, it needs to be this big by that big and have an exterior access and it needs to have a knock box. They're going to know a lot more information about it. Sure. I just need to know that it exists and put something in place and then someone else will say, eh, it's not big enough. Yeah, to, to plan for it, that you need to have it there. Yes. But the specifics of what it exactly is may fall onto someone else. Yeah, this is something. So part of the reason we chose this as a topic really was born out of a rant might not be the right way to put it. <laughs> Sour grapes on my part definitely played a role in this, but it had to do with not long after the pandemic started in 2020. It might have even been before that. I can't remember time so well anymore. Now that I've gotten my COVID shot. <laughs> That's a joke. I'm kidding. So we had a bunch of people all design a building. And then we all get together. Then we all compare it. And then we present it to the client. The client goes, I like what's behind door number two. And I made a stink about it because mine came in second place. Mm -hmm. And I thought mine was better, which let's be honest. If you're a designer, of course, you're going to think yours is better. Everybody thought mine was better, except for the guy who got his <laughs> selected. <laughs> Right. Yeah, sure. But here's the problem. So as I was solving this solution, I was like, okay, their budget's $14 million. So as I'm going through this, I'm thinking, huh, do this and don't do that and don't do this and do some more of that. And then there were things like, hey, I need to put a scuttle. This is the example we gave in the conversation we had before. Yeah. Was you got to have a roof hatch. And if my roof hatch daylights within 35 feet of the perimeter of my building, I have to put a handrail around, right? And so this guy designed a super cool building, which actually we had the groundbreaking ceremony on it last week. So that's kind of neat. But he had like humongous cantilevers. He had where the roof hatch would go based on how he planned the building. There would have to be handrails around his super flat roof that looked dope. Mm -hmm. And I go, it's not going to look like this at all. You're not going to have. When it's done. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have handrails. Nobody wants handrails. Your roof isn't cool anymore with handrails on it, bro. <laughs> and then, you know, 
and you're not going to have a 20-foot cantilever. We don't have the money mm-hmm. for that. Maybe you can do like six feet yeah. for our budget, right? And so, of course, his gets selected and we go through the whole process and everything has to shift and everything has to move and this gets a lot smaller. And at the end, I look at it and I go, I'm not so sure that if you had designed this, and this is the sour grapes part, if you had designed this from the get-go, I'm not so sure that they wouldn't have picked my version. I still believe that, 100%. <laughs> You're killing me, man. You're killing me. I, Sour I grapes. Know. I, you know? But I think really what that speaks to, though, is that idea of, and I think it happens a lot, at least the way that I would frame it, you know, in a larger firm where you only focus on design, the experience and knowledge that you applied to the design that you were doing versus that which they applied to what they were doing were different. And that's how come you ended up with something that was probably more in line with what the actual outcome would be versus his that it was more conceptual right. and then had to change a whole lot, right? Yeah. It's kind of funny. This is, again, this is truly two architects sitting at a bar drinking beer type of conversation. Mm-hmm. 100% is what this is about. Because this really was, hey, since I came through small firm mentality and you kind of have to think through all this, I know about detailing and I know about spaces and I know enough about codes to like go look them up and know that, hey, I should probably go find out what this is because I know it's going to have an impact on Mm -hmm. what I'm doing. And I know about what stuff generally costs. You know, I'm older. I'm more seasoned than this guy is. And he hasn't gone beyond. We haven't kicked him out of the design nest yet. So what he's working on now is just raw talent his sensibilities were scale and proportion, his refinement to his material palette from an aesthetic standpoint, and that's it. There is no detailing. There is no, like, how big is an actual piece of wood? There is no code. No idea about constructability, all those kinds of things. Yeah, none of those things. And that's not his fault. That's just he's relatively new at this, and he has to go through a process. So when I interviewed for my job here at Boca Pal, when I brought in my material, I brought in... It wasn't a suitcase, but it was like a suitcase worth of stuff. I go, here's projects I've designed. Here's drawing sets that I've put together. Here's sketches that I've done. And the four owners of the company were flipping through everything. And they're like, so who helped with this? And I go, me and one other guy drew all this. I'm like, who is the other guy? Is he a specialist? I go, no. He was the guy that graduated from college last year. Just how that process works. And they made the comment. They go, you're the capital A architect. You're the guy that can do it all. And I'm like, well, that's not true at all, just so you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I can dance to every type of music that's out there. I'm just not that good at dancing. And so part of that disruptor factor that we were talking about a minute ago was, so in our office, we have different bullpen stations where people sit. And originally, we put all the designers in one. And it worked out great in so many ways. So this is me not giving it a fair shake yeah. for the sake of not talking about it for 10 minutes to set it up. But Mm -hmm. the idea was that all the other designers can see what all the other designers are doing. And we can kind of feed on each other and go, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Feed off each other. Yeah, sure. And then part of my job is I get to go sprinkle design fairy dust on five other people while they're designing. Say, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. And why don't you change that? And that's what my role is. I don't have, I don't do a lot of white paper design anymore. Yeah. My job is to push these roly-polies down the line a little bit as they grow and develop their skill set. The problem that I had with that, they're not overhearing conversations from the CA department, and they're not sitting next to project architects, and they're not hearing what the PMs are going through. And if you think you're a designer and you don't get a seat in the design pod, do you all of a sudden start thinking, well, I guess I'm not a designer? Mm -hmm. And does that impact the way that you think about things? Sure. 
So I was like, we need to blow up the seating arrangement. And I guess I poison pilled enough people <laughs> to where that's exactly what we did. Yeah. We came in and we, out of 100 people, maybe three people are sitting roughly in the same spot. Everybody moved. Hmm. Everybody. And I'm not so sure that a lot of people don't like it because now it's not as convenient. And we're not grouped by teams, generally speaking. Yeah. Which makes it inconvenient for some people to go, I need to talk to my people. And I got to walk 40 steps away. <laughs> I've got to walk across the office. And I'm like, oh my God, it's so far. So it's going to take some adjustments to get used to it. So we started having conversations with the leadership group. There's a small splinter leadership group that talks about, do we have a responsibility to create capital A architects? People that can do it all. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that, so when you get hired into our office, as an example, as the large firm example, the vast majority of them, unless they don't want it, are project designers. That's how they start off. And they get to design buildings like right out of the gate, which if you're coming out of school, how great is that? It's the thing you're best at. <laughs> That's the dream for a lot. Yeah. That is the dream, right? And part of the reason we do it is that learning by osmosis, meaning as you design these buildings, we can talk to you about what ramps mean and what lobbies look like and what grids are. And we can help teach you some of the more technical aspects of this from a design standpoint. But the biggest bag of skills you have right now yeah. is as a designer. Yeah. It's not codes. Yeah. You know, it's not running jobs. That's the skill set you've been owning for the last four to six years. Exactly right. So at what point do you say, all right, project designers, actually, I should say design professionals, that's what they're called. All right, design professionals, at what time do I kick them out of the nest? And do they start to learn Revit and actually putting a drawing set together and being part of a team that they're under a project architect and they start having to meet different types of deadlines? They're on a project for months and months and months as opposed to high speed, hot burn at the very beginning. Yeah, a couple of weeks. Yeah. So that's something that we are currently going through right now. And I will tell you that the AIA has like a list of, you know, there's design professionals and there's project designers and there's project architects and there's project managers and there's project coordinators. And these things are all defined. And the AI went to the trouble to actually define these things. Yeah, like their list of roles. Right. You're a design professional one, two, or three based on your time in the field and mm -hmm. your experience and your skill set and your abilities. Like yeah. They established kind of a ladder in a sense. Right. So the question is, well, I shouldn't say the question. The way that that process is supposed to work is that you evolve through your DP one, two, and three role, and then you have a choice to make. Do you go project designer route, which is basically still people that design buildings. That's their job. They're designers. Or do they start to follow down a path to become a project architect, which means they spend more time in Revit. They're working with MEP engineers and structural engineers and all these different type of consultants to learn how buildings are actually built. Yeah. They learn flashing details and they start to do code searches. Because I can tell you, in my office right now, there's probably four people that are awesome at all those things. But the vast majority of people have just stuck their toe into those little pools for just a short amount of time, but they have a specialty that they've gone towards. Mm -hmm. I would say that that tends to be the case probably in larger firms. I'm not sure where that break is, whether that's a firm of 50 people or it takes 100 people where that size break is. But I think that somewhere in there, there's definitely a point where that starts to happen just as a natural occurrence, not that it's even planned per se, but that, that it just evolves into that organization organically. So the question is, is 
Do you think there's an impact on your career if you choose one way, like the jack of all, master of none, or the specialty? Is there a route that you would say, well, you should do this versus that? If you're right out of school, that's the question. What's the answer? What do I do, Andrew? <laughs> I know you can't answer it. I mean, I, I can't, but I could. My personal opinion is yes. Yes to what? I'm with you in the sense of a jack of all trades, master of none. And the reason I say that is because I think that makes you more marketable in the long run. But that's just my personal opinion. Does it make you a better architect, though? My answer would be yes, but that's also some bias, oh. right? Because of of how I am and how I educated myself and what I think of a quote-unquote capital A architect is, like you mentioned earlier. Sure. We know about everything, the entire process, and not just portions of it. So let me ask you this. Bartender, another round. But I'm in the hot seat. I know. You're putting me in the hot seat. I am. Well, because we need someone to be pushed against. So here's the idea. And I don't even know how to ask the question because I'm probably not really drinking beer. <laughs> right yeah no. yeah the thing i'm trying to work out is i go all right as the jack of all master none does that mean you have the ability to do a project delivery method from start to finish that equals better architecture does that equal better architecture or do you get better architect when you say i'm going to take a team of people that are all experts at what they do and does that equal better architecture and i can tell you the way I phrased it, you would think, hey, taking people that are experts, they add up to It's like saying, if I cook with better ingredients, my recipe is going to be better. However, the vision can be diluted a little bit if you're not doing it all. Yeah. The power of one person doing everything and their intent is a big deal. Yeah. I think to be able to maintain that intent, even the, the idea of the design and being able to maintain that through the process is probably easier. With one person, right? And I agree that it could get diluted when there's more people in there. But I don't think either way would, in my opinion, actually produces better architecture. I think it just depends on the people doing the work. Honestly, I know that's a cop-out answer. But if there were five experts, but they weren't really good at it, then it doesn't necessarily make a better architecture in the end. I agree with that. But what if you have one guy that that's not good at all five things? Yeah. Right. You could have four people that are really good at what they do and one person that's not. And that's going to make the project suffer for sure. Yeah, that'll ruin the project. Right. But yeah, you have one architect that's mediocre at all of them. That's not very good at any of it. Yeah. And it's not good either. Yeah. Again, it's all about what people's capabilities. And I would say maybe in that team environment that it might be possible to make up for that, make up for one person's lack, whereas... If one person's in charge of doing it all, you can't make up for their lack. If it was that there's one mediocre person that's doing it, and then there's four experts and one mediocre person on a team, well, then I would say that the team probably ends up with something better just because they're it's a maybe help make up for the mediocrity, if that makes any sense. Yeah, because you're not saying the thing that they're good at, they're incapable at all the other things. We're not saying that. Yeah. We're not saying it's you're either zero or a hundred at whatever your specialty is as an architect. We're saying your depth of knowledge in, like, say, specifications. I can write specifications, but there's no chance that I am as good at writing specifications as the guy that writes specifications all day, every day. Yeah. He is up to date on every last current standard that's in place because that's what he does. That's his job. Exactly. Will his specs be better than mine? For sure. And I would say, you know, probably on a commercial project, my specifications would be better than yours. Because I've done that more often than you making specifications for those kind of projects. 
but on a residential project, oh. you're going to kill me, right? That's how it works. But neither one of us are going to be as good as that guy in your office that does it every day. Well, no. See, that's what's interesting. That guy in our office, he can't write residential specs. Well, okay, yeah. He's probably better at asking the questions. This is kind of interesting. So we started the residential studio here at Pogo Pal. Sure. And it's going really, really well. In fact, it's almost going too well because I keep having more and more jobs because I am the tip of the spear, as it were, as the person that heads up the residential studio. And I can't dilute myself enough to keep doing all the projects that I'm doing. So I still have to shoulder a lot of the load. And I like the residential work a lot and I'm really good at it and I'm well suited for it and it fits my temperament really well. And I have a long list of people that want to work on these projects. But what's happening is like I write off so much time because I'm teaching people how to do that type of work because they don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? They're skilled, like our interior design department. But it's a different set of skills for sure. Right. This is a great example. I hadn't thought of this until just this moment. So I have, I don't know, 16 highly competent, very talented interior designers that work in our office. Mm-hmm. I made that number up. It could be more, but it's probably not less. Yeah. They're really, really good at what they do, but they don't know residential materials like they know commercial materials. Mm-hmm. So like the type of tile that I used to know of, they know some of the brands, but they don't know all of them. Yeah. There's just a lot of things that they don't know because they're not in that environment. Yeah. So I have to train them. These are the manufacturers we like. This is the price point on these things. Hey, if you're going to do a transition detail, this is what it looks like. Because how you would detail a transition in a house when you've got three people walking over it 10 times a day as opposed to 5,000 people walking over it 50,000 times a day, it's just different. You handle things differently. Yeah, for sure. And that makes a huge difference. So the time I spend on these projects is diluted a little bit because, well, from a financial standpoint, because I write off, these first couple people are getting a killer deal because I'm teaching them using their projects. So guess what? You're basically paying like 25% of my time to work on your job, even though I'm spending 100% of my time working on your job Mm -hmm. because I don't charge people for things that I think that we should already know how to do. I think that's fair. It's fair. Your business department might not think so, but yeah, sure. You know what? I squared all this away. They know. They know it. So I'm not worried about them listening to this podcast and going, wait, what are we doing? (laughs) That's a terrible business plan. Yeah. Well, but you're probably you're billing for the people that you're teaching, right? That time is billable for them, but not for you. No, that's it. That's why I'm awesome. I don't charge 100% of people who are learning something. Oh, all right. Right? Because maybe this is what makes... Look, I don't want to train a new person every single time. That's a bad business model. Oh, yeah, for sure. What I want to do is create like a core of people and say, look, you're going to be one of the six people that I'm going to work with, and I'm going to teach you how to do all this stuff. You're going to learn how to do it. So when they draw it and I go, that's not quite right. All right, well, I'm writing that time off because I don't believe in the learn while you earn. I mean, I'm sure I made a bunch of account type people just roll over right now or spit their coffee out of their mouth or something. Yeah. We're not supposed to be experts at everything all the time, but I just don't feel right doing it. So the point of all that is I have all these highly talented and capable people that don't know anything about residential work. Man, but I can set them loose on commercial projects, class A office buildings, whatever, and they're killer. Mm-hmm. Right? They're awesome. Mm-hmm. I just get in their way on those kind of projects. So it's really, really different. Yes. Yeah. You just ask dumb questions. I say, hey, what about this? And they go, dummy. Or they go, oh, okay, well, thanks. You can go sit back down now. (laughs) Actually, nobody does that. Good. 
More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are sitting here today with Steve Weil, Director of Sales and Marketing for Bilco. The Bilco company has served the building industry since 1926 and continues to be the industry leader in the design and manufacture of specialty access products. Bilco has built a reputation among architects, engineers, specifiers, and construction trades for dependability and for products that are unequaled in design and workmanship. Hi, Steve. How are you? Thanks for joining us today. I'm doing great, Bob. How are you? Glad you had me on today. Well, we're happy to have you here. I know that I have burning hot questions about roof hatches, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And specifically, we're going to focus in on Bilko's thermally broken roof hatches. You ready to do this? Sure. Glad to talk to you guys about it. Yeah. So the thermally broken roof hatch was actually a new product that we developed back in 2015. It's basically just a more energy efficient version of a standard roof hatch. We have an office over in the UK. The UK market was demanding something that was more energy efficient and also wanted something that was thermally broken to eliminate condensation issues they were seeing. Mm -hmm. So we developed that product primarily for the UK market back in 2015 as their standard product. And that's the only product we sell in Europe right now. When we did roll out the product for the European market, we did have it tested, laboratory tested to a number of different standards. Really? I'm going to confess something here is thermally broken roof hatches. I haven't had to do a lot of them in my career, quite honestly. And it seems like a product that everybody needs one of these. Every roof hatch should be thermally broken. And you guys got a good one. Yeah. So basically, roof hatches in general are used on every building. They come in every shape and size, and every building needs at least one to get onto the roof level to maintain HVAC equipment or just for general maintenance. So we've made hatches since the 1950s. And again, we started making this thermally broken version for the more demanding UK market in 2015. We decided to roll it out to the US market as a premium product, really just to see how it would go. And the product has taken off since. Yeah, I would imagine. So basically, the way the product is designed, the interior and exterior surfaces are separated by non-conductive material, which prevents that heat transfer from interior and exterior surfaces and eliminates condensation. So you can picture a roof hatch sitting on the roof in New York with two feet of snow on it and heat hits the underside. It's not going to be long before the roofer gets a call and says, hey, my roof hatch is leaking when it's really just condensation on the underside of the cover. So this product addresses it and it's also much more energy efficient. So what we did was we took the standard one inch insulation that a roof hatch typically has, which is an R value of about 4.6, and we increased it to three inches of polyiso. So now the R value is 20.3. So it's much more energy efficient. We redesigned the gasket system on the product and it's thermally broken. So it's the absolute premium of roof hatches that you can buy in the market right now. Yeah, I would say in Texas, we really need something that has that kind of R value because the sun is beating down and if we poke a hole in the roof, we need to seal it up the best we can for sure. Yeah, well, and that's a good point. Just like snow building up on a roof hatch, there could be a roof hatch baking in the sun and then you hit some air conditioning from the underside, same reaction. You're going to get condensation, 
complaints that the roof hatch is leaking when really it's just condensation. Yep. <laughs> the other interesting thing too is, and really the reason we see the hatch taken off is that roofing systems are getting much more energy efficient these days. So if you have an R20 or an R30 roof and you're going to cut a hole in it for a roof hatch, would you rather put an R4.6 roof hatch on it or an R20.3? Right. And it's really a no-brainer from that aspect. Yeah, for sure. I know that I personally have used this hatch before, and it's the thing that I looked at it and I thought, thermally broken, it makes sense. It seems like it's a reasonable thing to do, especially as high-performance roofs are getting put into place. We're going to go ahead and put a link into the show notes to the product page for what we talked about today so that people can go explore the additional benefits offered for themselves. For more information on Bilco and these thermally broken roof hatches, please visit www.bilco.com or call 1-800-366-6530. Hey, Steve, I appreciate you joining us today to talk about roof hatches. It's something that we all could probably benefit from knowing a little bit more about. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. All right, Steve. Take care. So let me ask you this. This is a question that you brought up earlier. Well, you brought it up earlier to me. And it has to do with, does a repetitive specialization cause the practice to stagnate? If I keep doing the same thing over and over, is that problematic? Yeah. That's a question. Yeah, and that's one of my, has been one of my criticisms of specialization. I mean, again, some of that comes from me as a sour grape thing sometimes. As when you're going out for public work and you're trying to find work and they want to know, have you done 15 or 20 of these things in the past two years so that you know what you're doing, which in a way I can understand because, again, there is some specialization aspect to that. But as a jack-of-all-trades person, it aggravates me to think that just because I haven't done it before doesn't mean I can't. And also, I might bring a new perspective to the whole process or the project that somebody who's been doing it, it's become a routine thing that, that they just almost rubber stamp in a sense. And not really, but they've got their process down and this is how we do it. And this is what we've done the past 20 times. That starts to be one of my criticisms of specialization in a sense. Yeah. You know what? It's interesting that you should use that as an example because as a small firm person, of course, that's what you're going to say. Yeah. Oh, I you have to say that as a small person. I said it all the time as a small firm person as well. And I bet your answer is different now. No, it's not. Oh. Still, I still believe that. What I'd like to say is, can we hybridize it? Because the thing that I would try to pitch as someone who hasn't done a hundred types of a certain type of project is you say, I will listen better than someone who has done this a hundred times. Mm -hmm. I will pay more attention to your needs because this is about you and me learning about what you want rather than me saying, hey, I already know how this works. If you don't do it the way I do it, it's because you don't know better because how many of these have you done? client mm -hmm. one or two or three i've done a hundred yeah you should listen to me because i'm the expert so part of that's just kind of a like how do you handle people how do you make them feel engaged and how do you get people to buy into the process sure and it always comes down to communication and that's not a class a office building skill and it's not a residential client skill communication is communication and some people are just better at it than others yeah but and again it's a different thing in, in public sector work that communication, sometimes you don't even get the opportunity to do that because you get ruled out ahead of time because you submit your statement of qualifications and they want to know how many of these have you done. And so you have to type out. Yeah. But you I'm going to listen better and 
they don't care. Yeah. There's a bit of a little nuance in there, but I agree with you that it is about once you get the opportunity, how you frame that conversation, you frame that situation. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I wonder if the example that you gave almost should be thrown out because <laughs> you don't get rewarded for being good at your job. Yeah. You're not more likely to get a project because you're really good, but you will not get a job because you're really bad. Like if you're really bad, you probably won't get a job, but yeah. you don't have to be really good to get it either. Mm -hmm. And it's different when you're actually going up against other architectural firms and they're like, okay, we want you to come in. You have 30 minutes to make a presentation and you're going to introduce a member of your team. You're going to talk about how you work, how you approach the project, how you yeah. approach the solution. How are you going to engage the entire team? Like that's a big part of what we do. Even mm -hmm. though we don't do public work, we do a mm -hmm. lot of commercial work. Commercial work, yeah. And for residential work, it's the same thing. And I can't help but go into every single one of these because I go, this is how I am. I want someone to validate that what I'm saying, they heard, they've internalized it, and they're going to bake it into whatever it is that they're doing. Because mm -hmm. I count on people to be better at what they do than what I am. And it doesn't matter if it's class A office building or if it's a residential house or it's some metal worker building a fireplace around for me. Whatever scale you want to talk about it, mm -hmm. I go, look, this is what you do all the time. You should be better at it than me. So we're going to collaborate on this. I'm going to convey to you what's important to me. And then you're going to protect me from myself by saying, I really like wood. I want to make my fireplace out of wood. And he's like, hey, guess what? As someone who builds fireplace, I'm going to tell you, Wood fireplaces don't work out great. Here's a better way to do it. Yeah. And I go, okay. Not a good choice. Not a good choice. Maybe if we do it out <laughs> of this and we can take what you want it to look like and we could do it out of a different product. That might be a really stupid example mm -hmm. when we listen to it later. <laughs> but it's the idea that I don't care what size building you work on or what type of project you're working on. That's the most important part for me. From a client, mm -hmm. if you're the client, don't you want your architect to go, hey, I feel like they actually heard me. And that what I say matters. Mm -hmm. I think so. And I go, that's not a big firm. That's not a small firm thing. Yeah. That's not a jack of all trades. And so that's why I've started to lean a little bit more towards, like, I've always thought communication skills were really important. But if I get five people that all do one thing really, really well, and they can all communicate, that seems like a superior product it might be coming down the pipe than one person who can do five things pretty well. But they're a good communicator, right? There's power in numbers. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. I might. Well, hey, order another round of beers. I could argue it the other way too. Pretty sure. I know. And again, for me, as the small firm guy that works in a large firm world, and that's all I've ever done is battle large firm mentality and all that you just talked about. And so it's a difficult sell for me on some level of my gut, but I don't necessarily disagree with it either. It just, it's hard for me to, to agree with it, I guess. Yeah. You know, maybe we're not the two best people to have this because we kind of start off by saying we both have small firm mentality, how our DNA has been built as architects over the last 20 plus years of our career mm -hmm. has been this small firm, jack of all trades mentality. One of the things that I am curious to know more about, just like I'm in a bigger firm now, so I see it, I'm witnessing it and I see pros and cons. But I feel like I can shape the cons to make them more pros. So like in our path, let's say that you're Jill Anderson and you are a design professional one and you work here for a while and you move through DP1 to DP2 to DP3. At some point, 
we say you need to learn how to draw a drawing. You need to know how the technology side of it works. And so we want you to go up through Architect 1, Architect 2, Architect 3, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. As they gather these technical skills, part of the option that they have available to them, at least in our office, is now they're licensed, they can slide back into a project designer role. They don't have to be a project architect. If they want to be a designer, great, you can be a designer. Mm-hmm. But we want you to go through this path mm-hmm. enough to be able to understand what they are what you can learn and what kind of value that knowledge can bring to whatever role you have. I think you're a better designer if you understand how buildings get built. I mean, that's the short and sweet of it, from my opinion. But we do run into people who have this mentality that they say they're project architects and they go, I'm not a designer. The designers design the buildings. We make sure that water stays out of them. They get built for the budget and we make sure that we're using the right kind of curtain wall system. I struggle with that mentality. Because the way it's been indoctrinated into me is that that person drawing and detailing the building makes a thousand more detailed decisions than I do as the designer. The thing that makes a project great, like I can design a good project, but when it goes into production, someone starts detailing it, that's the moment where it can become great. And if I have someone who thinks that they're not actually making design decisions when they size toe kicks based on base height. Or if they're saying, hey, I can detail the curtain wall this way at the corner, and it would be slicker. This would be better, as opposed to this would be Mm -hmm. cheaper, or it would keep out water better. Mm -hmm. If they don't bring any design considerations to the technical aspect of their job, I don't think they're making the project better at that point. I think they're just not making it worse. Mm -hmm. What I want is I want someone to design the technical details, not just draw the technical details. Yeah, and I think that it probably comes from our background, because I agree with you. But in that situation where things get handed from one group or silo to the next group or silo to do those things, that I think maybe that that can get lost Yes, in that idea of, well, I'm just implementing the technical aspect of something that somebody's already done. I'm not really impacting the design excellence of that piece. Well, and that's when the design vision can get diluted Mm -hmm. or lost altogether. I agree. If somebody doesn't extend that philosophy all the way through. Yeah, I agree. Or we're doing a project in Fayetteville right now, and it's got, at last count, I mean, at one point it had 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, like, like 20 buildings. And we have really talented designers, and they build models in SketchUp, and they float around, and they rotate, and they look at stuff, and da, 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 da. And I'm finding myself walking over there and go, hey, this overhang that you have, if you pull that six inches in from the edge of your building, then when the flashing turns up from the canopy, I can have a piece of wood return before the corner rather than have some kind of weird, janky flashing <laughs> detail right at an outside corner. Yeah, yeah. Right? Just It's a little design move, but guess what? Well, you don't draw flashing in these design models. They yeah. just don't do it. And you probably don't even know what it is or how it works. And then to take it even one step further, I'd say, hey, and the size of our boards are X. So if you pull your canopy in by a module of one board width and one board thickness, <laughs> then you can actually have your flashing terminate at a joint, yeah. like a natural joint, yeah. instead of it being like an inch into some panel and they got a saw cut in. Yeah, and then it looks janky, and then there's a place for water to come in. And da, 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 da. But I don't know how I don't know how you solve that. Yeah, you just take a whole bunch of small firm people and make them large firm people. 
Yeah. But we were talking earlier, I think my other concern with the over-specialization is that I think that it could possibly impact your maneuverability in a sense. Because if you do one thing, let's say you're you're only a designer at your firm, if it's a big firm, and you decide you're going to move to another big firm that they may not have an opening as a designer, but they may have an opening as a project architect. And you may look like you're okay for that. But then when you get there, you might be way out of your depth. Even as a small firm, I've dealt with that where I've hired someone from another firm and they'd been working there for 15 years and their level of knowledge was not what I expected for someone working in a small firm for 15 years because they'd have been siloed or pigeonholed and doing one thing and they were really good at it. But the jack of all trades did not work for me. That is interesting. So you're bringing up something that, quite honestly, I had not spent any time, didn't even show up on my radar screen. And I find it really interesting. Yeah. The idea that, let's say I'm a designer and I do schools. I do K-12, right? That's what I do. Mm -hmm. If I leave that job, especially if I'm seasoned, I've been doing this for 15 years. Mm -hmm. 15-year experienced design professional focusing on K-12 projects. That's what I do. I have to go get another job that does K-12, right? That does what I know how to do. That does exactly that. That does exactly that. And so the number of jobs, should you find yourself in a position to need a job, is throttled down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And and you could say that could be true for project architects, for project managers, even though I will tell you right now, project architects are like unicorns. I don't know what it is. They're like the hardest person to find. That's seven to 10 year person that's a project architect, someone who can actually draw, get into Revit, draw, do detailing, understand how things get put together, manage consultants, seven to 10 years. We always need those people. We have a standing rule in our office that if we come across one of those people, we bring them in. (laughs) We don't have that for all the other jobs, right? Like if we don't always need project designers, you know, I got a lot of them. We're growing them. Mm -hmm. Like try, we try to grow our people internally. Mm-hmm. But man, I'm telling you, if you're seven to 10 years experienced project architect, hook me up. We always need you. Like it's <laughs> always an issue. Yeah. And so say you're a small firm guy. Well, you're going to have to go get a job at another small firm. Like for instance, there's not a lot of people like me running around. It's not because I'm great. It's because Boca Powell took a chance on hiring me based on how I think about things, not necessarily the bag of tricks that I was bringing in the office. I don't know anything about Class A office buildings. Now, I am in the deep end of the pool now on Class A office buildings. I know a lot about them now, but I didn't when they hired me. Mm -hmm. So they're like, we're hiring you because of who we think you are. And I guess maybe not their words, but the disruptive force that you might bring to the (laughs) office. The idea that you think about things a little bit differently, which is good. I give them credit for for taking that chance on on me. Mm Mm-hmm. And I give myself some credit for actually taking that chance as well. It was really scary to move from a small firm to a giant firm. I think it was really yeah. pretty creepy. I understand that. Yeah. So what I wonder about is as you get older, I almost think it's harder for you to find a job as a small firm guy in another small firm. Because at a certain point, they're going to go, I can't afford to keep paying you more because I can hire somebody with less experience to still do yeah. the job I need you to do. Because I don't need you to get better and better and better. I just need you to do these 10 things adequately. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, you're like, well, I guess the only move for me is to go open my own shop or work for myself. Which, let's be honest, not everybody can do that. Not everybody should do that. As we have discussed. Yes. 
So I almost think that small firm people have a harder time as they advance through their career if they need to pivot or make a change. Maybe, maybe. I think that's difficult. Maybe. I mean, I think that you could go from a small firm to a big firm, though. I mean, I don't see a problem with that. I mean, I've sent younger people or less than 10-year experience people from my small firm into a big firm. But yeah, maybe as you get older. But I've also known a lot of people that, even like pre-pandemic, that closed their small firms and ended up working for big firms. You were talking about the K-12 stuff. There's a couple of people I know that did K-12 work that had a small firm and they closed up and now they work for like Stantec, which is a K-12 giant. Yeah. Their mid-level management, high-level management in those firms, because they have that level of expertise of kind of doing everything. Let me ask you this, because you can speak about this far better than I can. Do you believe, as I think you do, that the small firm specialized commercial provider is dying? Right? Like the giant K-12 companies in the world are just absorbing all the little K-12 firms. They're eating everybody. I mean, I think that's probably so in commercial work as well, at least larger commercial work. Yeah. But it's it's happening a lot in public work and in, in the K-12 market. You've got to be a pretty substantial size firm, I think, to be working. A few years ago, when still really trying to do things before I moved towards full-time teaching, but you know, I would be going up against Gensler for a $2 million project in some school district. And you're like, what? That, that makes no sense at all. Yeah. $2 million is... It's good for me, but like for them, it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah, but if it's all based on not your charm and charisma and your ability to say, look at this great work I've done, but just your, here's my 8,000 examples of doing this exact same project before, you can't compete with them anymore. Yeah. That's the criteria. You're done. Exactly. And that's what happened. Yeah. And that's how it started going. I mean, it became way too difficult. And then since I hadn't been doing any residential work, I couldn't fall back into that market because it's the same thing. And they're like, well, how many custom homes have you done? Or residential projects have you done? And you're like, mm, zero. Yeah. And it's not that you couldn't do one. It's just different. How do you sell that first project? Yeah. Different conversation. Exactly. I think that I've reached the conclusion, which is really, I hate to say that I, I kind of have gone full circle on this in a lot of different ways. And depending on what day and what time in my mood, and if I'm in a good mood or a bad mood, or someone's making me mad or whatever. <laughs> my position might change. Yeah. But I still can't see the downside to the jack of all, master of none. I haven't really seen a downside yet, but I think that's because in my mind, you go through a process of becoming jack of all, master of none to a certain point, and then you go, this is it. And then you zero in on that thing. Like it takes you a while to figure out what you want to do versus what you're good at versus what skill set is actually needed from you. I think it takes a while for you to figure Mm -hmm. and get yourself in a position where all three of those things are in alignment with one another. As of this recording, I'm 53 years old. And oh, I know, I know, 53, 53 years young. (laughs) There you go. But I wake up every day and I think, I feel so lucky that I'm in a job that lets me do all the things that I like best and very little of the things that I like worst and it's no mystery that the things that i really like i'm good at Mm -hmm. and i can say let me do this get on my back and i will get us there and the things that i don't like doing are things that i'm not that great at that's not shocking no for anybody but when you're 28 years old and in your mind you probably think you're as good at everything or as bad as everything at the same time yeah i mean that's true i think and i mean that's why i guess maybe that 
speaks to my philosophy that you could make a transition from a small firm to a large firm. And I guess I will add the caveat that they may get harder the older you get. But as a midpoint in your yes. career, seven to 10 years, or even any, probably up to 15 years, if you spent your time in a small firm becoming a jack of all trades, that that can definitely translate into a larger firm and be a benefit to you. I think that's it. I think we just we just <laughs> solved it, Andrew. You just put a bow on it. And it's the idea that the jack of all, master of none, serves you very well from a career standpoint in the beginning through maybe the first 7 to 15 years of your career. But when you're now at the 35 to 40 years old, you making a transition to a larger firm, your skill set will still transition. Your problem-solving skills that you get when you're a jack-of-all, master of none, they're going to translate. You still have immense value coming into a firm at 35 to 40 years old, even though you may not have any practical experience doing whatever it is that that firm does. Yeah, I would agree. I'm going to say that that's going to wrap up the professional portion of today's episode. And now it's time to move on to this would you rather question? And for the first time in a long time, Andrew has no idea what this question is. I'm coming in blind. You're coming in blind. Like I do for every episode, according to you. No, that's not true. They're normally in there. You just don't look at them. <laughs> this time, you didn't even have that option. So you 100% guaranteed have not heard this question. Yep. And it might be a terrible question. We'll just have to see. I will say, here's what I'm predicting as moderator and judge. <laughs> Of whether or not you answer this question correctly, all these questions correctly, I'm going to tell you that we're going to answer this question the exact same way, but the little five-second sneak preview kind of question is, I think gender absolutely plays a role into how you would answer this question. Okay, you ready? Sure. Shoot. All right. Would you rather be seven feet tall or four feet tall? Yeah, seven feet tall. Yeah. Seven feet tall. Done. No doubt. Yeah. There's no question. I mean, as a as a former college basketball player, definitely seven feet tall. Yeah. But even if not that, yes, yeah, seven feet tall. Never four feet. Okay. If you were a woman, would you rather be seven feet tall or four feet tall? I mean, I'm going to guess four feet, but I don't know. Maybe women will be seven feet so they could tower over dudes and like be the biggest person in the room. I'm not, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think that's true. I don't know. If you ask both of my kids... Both of my daughters, they would probably say seven feet tall. I want to be seven feet tall. I don't want to be four feet tall. I want to know. Ask them that question because there's a big difference. So here's the thing. So I know a couple yeah. people that are all like six, eight and a little bit higher than that. And just the pain in the butt of the things that they have to do because they're that tall, like ducking through every single door, not fitting in any single bed you ever get into. Flight, being yeah. like as uncomfortable as any human being could possibly be on every airplane flight you ever get on. Mm -hmm. Having to buy every piece of clothing you get from a specialty store. Like every single thing is a problem. I'm six one, and the number of times, like probably almost every single day, I almost hit my head on the exhaust hood in my kitchen. Oh, yeah. Let's add 11 more inches, <laughs> right? I'm not even sure I could see my cooktop. Because my hood would be sticking in my face. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like a sneeze guard, but it'd be solid. <laughs> yes. You couldn't even see it. Yeah. And can you imagine someone saying, hey, can you get something off the bottom shelf and you're seven feet tall? Yeah. It's like you're laying on the ground to yeah. get something that's four inches. It's not easy. Yeah. But I think that 
being a man and being seven feet tall, you're going to be evaluated differently. I don't want to say that people who are short aren't competent, but how they're perceived. Because the only reason I say this before y'all come at me, I know y'all are going to come at me. <laughs> I have a 16-year-old daughter. And the amount of time that all these girls talk about how tall their dates to dances are and all that kind of stuff, yeah. it's a big deal. Oh, yeah. They talk about it all the time. All the time. Sure. And I think that would really be a drag. I think that the force of your personality has to be amazing if you're four feet tall. For you to have the same kind of, like like my last boss, he was six eight. He walked in the room, everybody paid attention to him, mm-hmm. right? Because he's imposing. He would say something, and sometimes I thought, they just believe it because he's bigger than everybody. <laughs> I, I literally felt like that sometimes. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know? <laughs> and I think that would be really tough if you're four feet tall, because then all of a sudden, your personality has to be bigger in life as opposed to your body's just bigger than life kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But with women, I think that you being a short woman you're not viewed in the same way than if you're seven feet tall. Because they have all the same problems. They have all the same problems that a man would have at seven feet tall. But they don't have the same problems, I think, that a four-foot man would have. Maybe. I could be way off base. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I don't think I am. <laughs> I don't want to speculate on that one, really, honestly. This is when we're in a bad shape because we don't have someone to answer it. Right, because you're thinking that we don't have a woman yeah. to chime in on this. Yeah. So at the very least, as a man... You spent half a second going, it's going to be seven feet tall. Yeah. But that's because I've always wanted to be taller than I am. Yeah. You know how tall I want to be? I want to be 6'4". I don't want to be seven feet tall. I want to be 6'6 six, six or so. That's tall. 6'6", six, 6'8", six, six, somewhere near. That would have been great. Oh, I'd have had a different life. No. You think? Oh, yeah. I know. I don't know that you could know. Because I know you played basketball. Yeah. But you're thinking if you just had a couple more inches, you had all the other skills. That was the only thing holding you back. Yeah. For you having a life of professional basketball, yep. the only thing holding you back yep. was a couple of inches. Yep. Guaranteed. That's some guaranteed. Yep. I don't think you can do that. I can't. I don't think you can. I can't because it was a long time ago, so I can guarantee it. <laughs> oh, I'm going to say that there are guys that get drafted that it doesn't work out for. It was 20 years ago, so I can guarantee it. Yeah. All right. I'm going to say you can't guarantee it. I know. But. Well, that's fine. But. I can appreciate that you have a different perspective looking at it since that played a big role into your formative years. Yeah. I just can't imagine being four feet tall. Yeah. The question would be is what if it was like seven foot or five foot? Four foot is just, I think, a strange height. I don't know. It's sort of an in-between, in my opinion. Okay. No offense to all the four foot, exactly four foot tall people out there, but. Okay. What if I said seven feet or five, six? Yeah. See, right now. I mean, for me, I would still say seven feet, but. That's because that's what I want. What if it's right now? You're going to become seven feet tall. Not when you're 20 years old or 18 years old. I'm saying right now, Andrew. I'd still probably go with that seven feet. Sure. Instead <laughs> of five, six? Instead of five, six. Yeah. Boy, it's harder. It gets harder <laughs> that way because five, six, you're short as a man, but you're not that much shorter than what the norm is. Yeah. Do you even know what the average is, average height for a man is? Is it 5'10", I think? I think it's 5'10". Something like that? We were looking at it the other day because, again, I had this conversation with my daughters because my youngest is now almost as tall as my oldest, and it's getting to be a battle. We looked up that the average height for a woman was 5'5", five five still. Yeah. And so I, I think for a minute it's 5'10". Yeah, I mean, at 5'6", you're sort of average for everything, but I'm, I'm still, you know, too much impact on me in my youth. And seven foot, seven foot. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I look at it from a more practical standpoint because I go, how hard is being seven foot on your body as you get older? Like what kind of problems as a seven foot tall person are you going to have in your 50s? I'm sure it's horrible. You know? Or even in your 60s or 70s. Like I'm sure your knees and- It's going to get worse. Your hips and your back and all that stuff is just, yeah, shot. You're blasted. Sooner than it would be if you were five, six. I think that's a given. So if it was five, six and seven foot, I think I'd probably go five, six. Hmm. As much as my dream in life was to be six, four, that seemed to me like the perfect height. Mm-hmm. I'm only six, one. And my dad was six, three. I'm like the shortest. Like my dad and all his brothers, they're all like six, three or taller. One was six, four. Two of them were six, three. Yeah. My wife's five, eight. My daughter's five, eight. So you'd be okay being the shortest in your family? Well, I, they have to take me <laughs> at this point. I don't think they'd leave me over that. Yeah. Even though, I mean, my daughter seemed like she was ready to kick me to the curb last night when I, I made a joke that I thought was hilarious. And she goes, that's not a funny joke. And she decided to be mad at me for the rest of the night. <laughs> but then it's all fine. Yeah, it happens. You know, they forgot about it. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Another amazing show completed. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you for being with us today for episode 75. Should Architects Do It All? We would like to thank Bilco for joining us today. And for more information on Bilco's thermally broken roof hatch, just visit bilco.com. In addition, shout out to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. We love you guys. If you like today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe or follow button so you can get sizzlicious new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment and I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star Architects from Scratch rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this wonderful episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.